We're going to transition. We're, uh, we're in our last week of the book of Ruth this morning. Uh, as we've done the past couple of weeks, we've had uh, one of our valued female members of the church come and speak. And this morning, uh, we have another treat for uh, us as a community. We're going to have Ruth Stoops come up, and uh, her name is Fitting. So she is going to come up and uh, speak to us about how the book of Ruth has impacted her life. So let's uh, welcome Ruth. Hello. Um, I'm actually really nervous, and I know some of you have seen me up here singing on worship, and I am much more comfortable singing than talking, so if I just break out into song, we can pretend that we're on Glee or something. Um, But there are like a million puns or whatever. I, I walked in this morning, and I was like, oh my gosh, they personalized the bulletins for us, and then I realized. So I was named after... Ruth the Moabite, and um, some of the um, verses were used in my parents' wedding vows, so this book has special meaning for me. Um, in preparing for this, I, I've had like a month to think about it, and initially the theme that God um, pressed upon my heart was God overcoming, and um, Ruth was really unqualified to be part of God's story, part of Jesus' lineage. Um, She was the wrong race, gender, age, religion, marital status. She didn't have kids. All these things were kind of working against her in order for God to use her. Um, But God still chose her to be part of his larger story, and she was an essential part of bringing Jesus into the world. And um, I just, I love when God kind of breaks the rules and says, this is how much I love you. I'm just going to kind of and I don't really know if this is theologically correct, but just throw everything out the window and just like a wild move, like, yeah, you, I'm, I, I'm expanding my love and exploding it all over the world. And it made the Jews really mad, but as Gentiles, we should be really happy that he does that because we are in the fold because he expands to people who are unqualified. Um, and so th- in thinking about how I related to this, I, I mean, at first this like clicked in my head as soon as they asked me to do this. I read through the book, and this is what stood out to me. And so I was like, okay, but I can't just talk about that. I needed to talk about how it applied to my life and what it's speaking to me. And um, so just like thinking, how does that apply? And I'm like thinking about this one time I met a guy named Boaz at, when I was 15 at a creation festival for all of you youth group kids out there. Um, and I couldn't find his tent site, so I never, you know, like made, sealed the deal and slept at his feet or anything. But but I really did meet him, and he was kind of cute, but I, I lost him. And, and thankfully, good transition, my husband's not here this morning, but I have a picture of my family. I found someone, and this is Lane and our two boys, Landon and Keller. Um, beautiful family. Um, and on the outside, I look really qualified, actually. I couldn't really relate to Ruth's demographic unqualifications. I'm... I'm white, I'm well-educated, I'm middle-class, I'm an American. Like, I have all these things at my disposal. I was raised in a Christian home. I have all the tools in my tool belt in order for God to be able to use me, right? I look fine. Look great. Wonderful family. <laughs> Not like I look, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, so, and then it just hit me this week as I was rocking my baby to sleep. I was like, God just... It's like, nope, you have to lie at the feet of this community and make yourself vulnerable. And so I'm going to do that. 
Um, and I'm, I'm a pretty open book. I, I have very few inhibitions, and I am not very shy. But um, I'm not really used to opening up in this kind of setting, so this is scary for me. But um, as some of you may know, I've dealt with depression throughout my adult life for the past about 10 years. I've been in and out of episodes of um, clinical depression. And more specifically, I've had postpartum depression after both of my boys' births. Um, and one of the things that people don't necessarily know about postpartum depression is it's not just sadness or fatigue, but in my case, um, it has come out in irritability and anger. And um, it's not like anger, like, man, these kids are so frustrating, because like every parent <laughs> has had those moments where you lose your temper and, you know, you raise your voice or whatever. But this is like, I knew that my postpartum depression with my oldest was over once my jaw started, stopped hurting because I wasn't clenching my jaw every day. And it's white knuckles and clenched jaws and rage and hate and so much shame because you saw my babies. They're beautiful. They're perfect. And they deserve to be loved. And they are loved, and I do love them, and it's not every moment, but um, there's, a, there's a deep brokenness in my home and in myself. And um, I have come to know and to believe that a lot of it is a sickness, and my husband's a counselor, and so God knew where to put me in my life to be well taken care of. And hallelujah for Prozac and counseling, because they've helped a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a birth doula, and so in a lot of ways my birth, or my, my story with postpartum depression is going to help me throughout the rest of my career um, walking through other moms who are dealt with this. This is the most common complication of pregnancy is postpartum depression because um, hormones are wacko after you have a baby. <laughs> and for some people it gets, it gets really to an unhealthy place. Um, so anyways... Um, it's, it is a sickness, but for me, it's also a way that sin has crept into my life. My, my selfishness and my desire for control have been manifested through this sickness. And so when I look at this ugly, dark monster in my closet, I feel really, really unqualified to do the biggest calling of my life right now, which is to be a mother. Um, so I feel really unqualified, and I, I think I am unqualified to give my children what they need and to um, serve my family and my community. So in a lot of ways, I relate to Ruth being this kind of wild card, like why was she chosen? She was wrong for this job. I feel wrong for this job. But I have seen God use me, and I, I'm not at a place where I, this is all tidied up. My, my son is 10 months old, and I still am struggling um, I feel like there's an end in sight. He started to sleep through the night, and that makes a big difference for me. But um, I'm in the midst of it. I'm I'm in the dark part of my story. I'm in the the part where we're we just arrived, and I, I'm in a place where I'm not. You know, I haven't married Boaz yet in my story, <laughs> but um, I have seen God use me, and my kids are healthy and secure and well attached, and. Um, God has used me to be a safe and soft place for them, even in the midst of what I'm struggling with. Um, 
like I said, as a birth doula, I'm able to minister to women who are in really vulnerable places in their lives. Um, I'm still able to bless my husband and hopefully some of you. And it's a miracle that God uses us when we're so broken to, to heal each other. And um, so I just want to encourage all of us that you're not, you are unqualified, and yet God, in his amazing and explosive love, has chosen you and me to do his work and to be his kingdom people. And we don't have to wait until we're fixed because that would not ever happen. <laughs> and it's, it's just a, an unfathomable reality that we can do God's work even when we are broken. And, um, and just like Ruth was an essential part of God's story, he chose her to be an essential part, and he's chosen us to be an essential part. We, we need to press in to what God is calling us to, even though we are a mess. And maybe some of you are in a mess, but I have a feeling I'm not the only person who's a mess out here. Um, but God wants to use you and show you his favor. And he didn't just use Ruth, but he gave her so much. He gave her a home and a family and a, a name among his people. And um, so that that's part of my story. And, um, oh, I forgot my main joke. I... My notes didn't email right this morning, so I had to kind of like write them down on this bulletin. But um, <laughs> we're talking about names this morning. And this really is like a bad place to put this in my talk, but I really want to talk. <laughs> my, um, I've grown up and I got like those, you know, maybe some of you have had those like bookmarks that have your name and then the name meaning and like scripture and there's like a beautiful ocean in the background. And, well, mine means beautiful friend, and so growing up, that was really special to me. Friend, let Ruth means friend, and that's the Hebrew meaning. And so I was like, well, I should just Google it to make sure like it hasn't changed or something before I tell people that that's the meaning of my name. But that's the Hebrew meaning, and then the English meaning um, is compassion. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, I'm I'm a feeler, and so that I connect with that. And then I saw the American meaning is drunk or satisfied, and I'm like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I didn't know American names. I didn't know that American, like, it's not a language, so I didn't know how it had a meaning, but good old Americans. So on that note, <laughs> I will pass on the mic. <laughs>
uh, or if there's family connection or, or any meaning to your name. So uh, we'll give you a minute or two and do that. Talk about your names. Is there meaning? What is it? Uh, is it important to you? All right, we will uh, <clears throat> re-engage. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to talk to someone next to you and find out a little bit about uh, their name or its meaning or the significance of it. So, for example, if I was going to share with you my my name is Russell Wade Davis. Russell Wade Davis. It uh, has no family connection. Um, there's no significance to it other than my mom said she just thought it flowed really well. <laughs> yep. And uh, Russell technically means red-haired fox-like. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, you can definitely see why I was named that. That's the American meaning, though. Yeah, so. probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> So all of us uh, have been given a name, and uh, all of us probably, to varying degrees, either love the name we were given or kind of wish that it would, might be a little bit different. I don't know if you've ever thought before about uh, changing your name. And you might say, well, why would I change my name? I just love it. It's great. Well, some might change it because they prefer a different name. Others might change it simply because it seems like everyone has your name, and you want yours to be a little unique. Maybe. You've found that over time you need a stage name for some reason, and so uh, you decided to opt for a different name, or maybe you just got stuck with an unfortunate name. Kevin and I did some research over the last week of uh, unfortunate names that people perhaps wish they uh, were able to change, or maybe they have changed over time. I heard a story a while back when I was uh, growing up about uh, these two girls in Texas. The two girls in Texas were named... Ima and Yura, which is not that bad except for the fact that their last name was Hog. So, I'm a Hog and you're a Hog. I'm a Yura. Yeah, that maybe not the greatest names. Or here's another one. We have uh, one coming up here. It's, pronounce that for me. Ladasha. Very good. It's weird that you know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the dash is not silent. <laughs> At other times, I guess it is, but at this particular time, it's not. So you might have been given a name like that. Here's a couple others. Uh, a couple more, and, and this, is, this one's funny because oftentimes people, when they try to guess my name, if you've ever played that game, they, they often say this one first for me. They're like, hey, you look like a Lamangelo. <laughs> you can laugh. That's funny. <laughs> uh, Lamangelo <laughs> being maybe an unfortunate name, especially if you spell it this way. Lemongello. Lemongello. Lemongello, an actual name. Uh, another unfortunate one is Absidy. Spelled A-B-C-D-E. Absidy. An actual name given to an actual human being. Yes. Um, this last one is probably one of the more unfortunate names to be given. Uh, I spelled it phonetically first. It's Shatid. And uh, it's actual spelling. Yeah, you guessed it. Yeah. Not, maybe not what you want to name your son someday. Uh, as Russ mentioned, stage names are a big deal in our culture, too. That um, Some people find it important, maybe even necessary for their work, to have a stage name that, that better exemplifies the identity that they want to give. So um, we're going to play another little game here. We're going to read a real name, a real person's name, and you try to give us that person's stage name. Okay? And you just yell it out. We'll go through this quick. Uh, here's the first one. I believe this one is relatively easy. Jennifer Anastasicus. 
Jennifer Aniston, nice job. We have a picture there? Jen the girl next door, right there, Jennifer Aniston. Uh, second one, Henry John Duchendorf Jr. Anybody? No, not Harry Connick Jr. That's not a bad guess. Nobody. John Denver. How many people, does anybody even know John Denver in this crowd here? <laughs> okay, good. I love John Denver. Okay, so there's one. Uh, how about Reginald Dwight? Does anyone know Reginald Dwight? Better known as Elton John. Uh, some of you that are more into sports might know this. Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali. How about Chad Johnson? Ocho Cinco. Ocho Cinco. That's right. Change his name Sometimes to you change it to a more, for in, more unfortunate that name. That guy's got a sick grill, too. I'm thinking about getting one of those. Uh, how about Ron Artest? Meta World Peace. I think that's a fitting picture of him elbowing somebody. Ron uh, Artest. You, you yeah, sure. Edward Lewis Severson III, a.k.a. Eddie Vedder. The greatest musician of all time. <laughs> One of my favorites. How about uh, Stefani Joanne Angelina Germanotta? That's how you would say it. Any, hey, Lady there we Gaga. go. Well done. Yeah, Lady She'll Gaga. She'll be pulling that out right there. Like just a little Woo. sheepish in the back. Just like, I kind of knew that one. Yeah. Yeah, this is when she wore her meat dress to the Grammys or something. That was a statement for sure. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, Prince Rogers Nelson. No one, okay? Also known as love symbol number two. Also known as the artist formerly known as Prince. Also known as Prince. Yes, he's been in the business of changing his name quite frequently. Now, we can have, uh, we can have fun with uh, names and talking about their uh, insignificance, or better yet, their significance. But there, we believe, is a lot of significance to the idea of names. What you are named and how you live into your name uh, says a lot about, perhaps, your future. We can live into our names both for the positive or for the negative. Many of you have probably read the book Freakonomics. How many of you have read that book? In the book Freakonomics, there's a story about uh, a family with the last name Lane, the Lane family. Robert Lane was the father of this uh, family that grew up in New York City. They lived in the 1950s. They uh, had a group of kids, five of them at the time, with uh, fairly typical names. When they had their sixth, it was a son, and they decided to name him Winner. Winner Lane. That was his name. Now, uh, Interestingly enough, three years later, the Lanes had another baby boy, their seventh and final. For reasons no one can quite pin down, Robert decided to name this son Loser. So, Winner Lane and Loser Lane. Now, you might ask, how does a name shape the future? Do you live into your name or do you not? Here's how this particular story went. Loser Lane went on to prep school on scholarship, graduated from Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, joined the New York City Police Department, eventually becoming sergeant, and all of his friends call him Lou. Winner, however, went on to gain a criminal record of more than 30 arrests for burglary, domestic violence, trespassing, resisting arrest, the list goes on and on. The question we ask is naming destiny. Is there some significance to names? And what, if anything, does this have to do with Ruth? I tend to believe that <clears throat> there is a lot of significance 
in the names that were given. So much so that Grace, my wife, and I spent a lot of time thinking and praying about the names that we were going to give our three boys. Each of our boys' first and middle names are the names of significant family members in our lives. So we have Theron Paul, Berg Walter, and Kempton Gregg. With these names come the stories of the people that carried these names before they did. Their names carry this idea of legacy or lineage. These stories help our boys to understand the history of our family, and I believe that they will inform their future. They'll inform their character. We talk a lot in our family about what it means uh, to carry these names, what it means to be a Longmire, how Longmire men should love their family and care for others, that Longmire men live with integrity and gentleness and patience and joy, that Longmire seek adventure and live life to the fullest. And not only do Grace and I try to model these characteristics, but we reinforce it by connecting it back to their names. Again, supporting this idea that names are important. What's your name is important. Names are not only important in our family, uh, in, in, these, in this story I shared or, or earlier, but they're important to all of us. Many of you have probably heard the idea that the most important word to a single individual is their own name. When you hear that, that is the most important word that's spoken. Names carry a great amount of weight in our culture. There's biblical significance to names as well. Think about this just for a moment, the creation narrative. God gives Adam a name. Then God instructs Adam to give the animals names. In the midst of all that was going on in the time of creation, the naming of humanity, the naming of animals emerges as important. I find that interesting. (laughs) Of all the details that could have been given of that creation narrative, this becomes an important detail. You see, without names, there's a lack of order. There's a lack of distinction. And I believe a lack of a critical piece of identity. Now, people get stuck on this idea in the creation narrative. I actually spent way too long, about an hour, in the internet vortex, if you've ever been there, uh, trying to figure out, well, what do different commentators say about this idea uh, of, of the animals being brought in front of Adam and, and Adam given the, the uh, authority to name all of these animals? And here's some different ways that people have uh, wrestled with this, that this was done simply for Adam to find a suitable helper that this was actually done for Adam to exercise dominion. And then some commentators go on and say, and if so, then how does this relate to egalitarianism? Some say it was for Adam to learn language. And then the point brought on beyond that one, and I think this is just crazy, is, and if it was for that reason, then did he learn Latin at the same time? Because Latin is how most of our animal species are named. There are well-educated people actually writing about this stuff and thinking about this. Here's where I land with this, and maybe this is too simple for you, but for me, I find comfort in this. Maybe it's as simple as God understood that our names would be important, and so he deemed them valuable. Maybe it's that uh, having a name allows us to relate to him, relate to another person. Maybe it's because names become the foundation of our personality and our character. Maybe it's because through names we're able to express emotion and show love to one another by speaking somebody's name to them, showing them that they're important, that they are known. The honest truth is the scripture doesn't really tell us why this happens. But we should understand that it's important enough to be in the creation narrative. Two chapters are given to the creation narrative of the entire universe, and naming seems to emerge as an important idea. 
I think that leads us to believe that names are important, that it's critical that we understand this. So much so that you see that same thing trickle throughout Scripture. You see examples of God changing people's names as he puts them out on mission, as he sends them out or he defines a new calling for them. Here are a couple of examples from the Old Testament. You have Abram, who becomes Abraham. You have Sarai that becomes Sarah. Both of them at the time when they've commissioned with this idea that they're going to be the father and mother to a great nation. You have Rebecca, who gives birth to twins, names the second one Jacob, which means deceiver. She names her son a deceiver. A little later, God wrestles with this Jacob. He walks with a limp and comes out also with a new name and is called Israel. Transition over to the New Testament. There's others in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament you see Saul become Paul. You see Simon become Peter, the rock on which the church is built. We believe that this is happening all throughout Scripture. We see it again and again, but it also happens here in the story of Ruth. See, the story of Ruth is significant because we can understand it through this lens of names. Even the mood of the book, the very way you picture what is being written about, changes when you understand the names. They give insight, and they express some deeper points that are found within the book. So let's take a look at a a couple of the names of these key characters. I'll start here. Elimelech means God is king, which is particularly ironic because in this time there was no king of Israel. That Israel was ruled by judges, and uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as the scripture says. But it's also ironic because out of Elimelech comes the kingly line of Judah. And for a third reason it's ironic is that, uh, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that Elimelech doesn't even really live in to this name. He doesn't trust that God is king, and so he moves, and he goes to Moab to try to establish a better life for himself. So you have Elimelech, then you have Naomi. Naomi means pleasantless or a gracious one. But then you track her story, and she comes back to Bethlehem, and she changes her name to Mara, the bitter one. They have their two sons, Malon and Shilion. Malon means sick or puny. It's a, that's a tough one to have. <laughs> Shilion means failing or weakening, which again fits with the story. Both of these gentlemen die after, uh, shortly after being married. The story continues. I mean, you're seeing how these names weave into the story so far. But then you have Ruth, which means friendship or fellowship. It means beauty. And really, she demonstrates what that name means, a beautiful friend. She demonstrates that to Naomi. She begins to demonstrate that to the people of Israel. And then Orpha means gazelle or fawn. I really don't know what that exactly means or why that's very important, but she left, so who cares? She's not really part of the story. We also have uh, Boaz. Boaz means swift strength or he comes in strength. I mean, what better language, what better wordage to describe this man who comes in with strength and redeems a situation and changes the fortune of people? Then you have Obed, the name of Boaz and Ruth's son, which means worship or he who serves. So you have from Elimelech all the way down to Obed, and what you see throughout this story is that names shape our understanding. They add depth to this overall picture of the text. And from Obed to David to Jesus and to us. So just as we, my wife and I, talk about legacy with our boys and their (laughs) names, this list of names in the book of Ruth is important because it represents legacy. It represents 
this idea of lineage, that through the line of Ruth, Jesus comes. And through Jesus, we begin to carry a new name and therefore a new identity. Now, this word identity can sometimes be a tricky thing. I love, uh, if, if any of you have seen the movie Juno, came out uh, several years ago. I, I love this scene. She's a, like a 15, 16-year-old girl who gets pregnant, and she's sitting on her bed a- after having uh, talked to her parents about this, and her dad, Mac uh, McGuff, comes up and sits on the side of her bed, and, and he's lamenting this new reality that they find themselves in, and, and he says this to her, I thought you were the kind of girl who knew when to say when. And Juno, and I think a, a really brilliant line from a, only that a, a teenage person could say, says, I don't know what kind of girl I am. I, I love that. That speaks powerfully to me. That speaks to my entire high school life. That speaks even into my life now. How many people here can resonate with that statement? Or how many people have found themselves saying, I don't even know who I am? So maybe you've found that trying to figure out your identity is tricky on your own. But when we are in Christ, we no longer have to do this on our own. This is what Galatians 3, 23 through 29 says. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, uh, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or, or female. And you were all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is speaking a deep message about identity in this passage. So earlier uh, to verses 23 through 29, Paul is really chastising the church in Galatia for the laxity of how they had been living and from the ease by which they had been swayed by false teaching. And he uses Abraham's unquestioning faith as an Old Testament example as to how they should be living. And so in verse 23, he shifts to this idea of identity, concluding that in Jesus and through the new covenant, they are no longer under a guardian, but can consider themselves sons of God. Now, guardian in this context is interesting. A guardian was essentially a slave charged with the transportation and care of Roman and Jewish boys. It was a position that a slave would hold in a family. They would, guardians often would lead these boys to school where the teacher would then take over and teach them the scriptures. Paul is insinuating that God brings the spiritual seeker to Jesus, where they are no longer under guardianship but considered free and full heirs in the family. Sons in the Greek, huios, uh, I think that's up here on the board, maybe not. Uh, This was a Greek legal term used to denote adoption and inheritance. You see, what happens is adoption in this passage. Those who were adopted change their names in our culture, and they assume a new family identity. This is the same for us. We have been adopted by grace, and through faith into the family of God. We are adopted sons and daughters. We have been rescued and freed from sin and bondage, and we're given a new life. We're given a new name that changes the entirety of our identity. 
Paul goes on further to uh, say that in adoption there is no longer Greek or Jew, free, slave, male, female, the ways in which the world tries to pinpoint and judge identity in others. He says those things no longer matter. Paul does not do away with the reality that there are distinctions in demographics, but argues for a unified identity that is now in Christ and by the name with which we carry, his name, Jesus' name that we carry. So unlike Juno, we no longer have to ask the identity question because it's been answered. When I was gracefully welcomed into the family of God, my identity changed. When you were welcomed into the family of God, your identity changes. I became what I'd always desired but never knew I could be. You have become what you always desired but never knew you could be. Now, certainly this doesn't mean that I have figured this entire thing out, that I don't struggle with this idea of identity, that there aren't times where I revert back to trying to do it on my own, but I now have hope and can trust in the new name I carry and how it's continually shaping me as a man, how it's changing and molding my identity. Kevin just spoke about this identity piece, and what I want to do over just the next minute or so is I want to highlight what I think are two implications of this. And I'm going to move through this section really quick, so track with me. There are two things that I think stand out in this text to me. One is that God doesn't see us by our actions, but sees us through this new identity that Kevin just talked about. Let me give you a little backstory. Um, Many of you are familiar with the book of Judges. There's a character in it by the name of Gideon. There's this section that I love in the text where um, the angel of the Lord, it says, comes to Gideon, and Gideon is in a wine press below ground, threshing out wheat. You don't do that in a wine press. First of all, it doesn't separate anything very well. Second of all, the reason he's in there is because he's scared to death. The Midianites are all around. He's fearful that he's going to die, and so he's hiding out while he's trying to, to... to gain some food for his family. And in that scene, the angel of the Lord comes and says to him, do not be afraid, you mighty warrior. Whoa, time out. In the story, he's anything but a mighty warrior. In the story, I mean, the angel probably should come and go, hey, pansy, toughen up, let's go, right? We got a war out here, we got to do something, let's, let's go and be the people of God. Instead, He comes to this man who's failing and and sees not for who he is, but for who he will be. He's forecasting a bit. The same thing happens in this story of Ruth. What's interesting is right before the book of Ruth, in the Hebrew Bible, not in the English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, is Proverbs. So it goes Proverbs Ruth, not Judges Ruth. The Hebrew Bible ends, Proverbs, ends with Proverbs 31. Most women in the audience could probably mention that that is the ideal passage for women in the church, right? This beautiful Proverbs 31 woman, everyone wants to emulate what that person looks like. Here's what's interesting. The book of Ruth is a perfect picture, and the reason it's placed in the Hebrew Bible immediately following, is if you want an illustration of what it looks like to be that kind of woman, a woman of valor, a woman of noble character, be Ruth. That's what the Hebrew Bible is getting at. Be Ruth. Now, as our Ruth described just a moment ago, Ruth would not have thought of herself as a woman of noble character or a woman that was, God was doing amazing things through. She would have thought of herself as a widow who's childless, who's a foreigner in a new land, who's in poverty and who's trying to glean grain and wheat 
from all around that's just leftovers. But instead, God walks into that situation and the text describes her as this woman of valor, this woman of character, this woman of honor. It's this beautiful picture that he sees Ruth not just in the circumstances she is in, not just for the actions, but he sees through all that for who she is and who she will be. The same is true for us, that he looks at us, not just at our actions, but who we are in Christ. And part of that is the fact that we carry the name of Christ. There's a passage in Acts chapter 11 that says that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, that we were called little Christs, that all of us bear the name of Jesus. There's this story about uh, Alexander the Great. One time he was amongst all of his warriors. They're getting ready to go into battle. He walks across the front line and he comes up to one of his soldiers who's kind of looking disheveled, who's looking sloppy, who just kind of does not look prepared for battle. And he walks up to him and he says, Soldier, tell me your name. And the soldier looks at him and says, Alexander, sir. And then he gets this face, like just anger. He looks at him and again he goes, tell me your name. The guy goes, Alexander, sir. And he goes, oh, you have two options. Either change your name or change your conduct. Now, that might seem harsh, but Alexander the Great would have been one of the most powerful human men alive at that time. And he's saying, listen, if you and I carry the same name, there's implications for you because of that. The same is true of us. That if we carry the name of Christ, if we are little Christians, if we are to model and exemplify what it means to follow Jesus, there are heavy implications to our, ang- our actions, our language, our very lifestyle. The very overflow of our life should be one that looks like and carries the name of Christ. That we are to be people who do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Let's uh, end with this last point. Carrying the name of Jesus means that there is a change in the here and now, in our actions and our language, as Russ just mentioned. But there is an eternal change in our names as well. Revelation 2, 17 says this, Those who have ears should listen to what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. I will give hidden manna to those who overcome. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it. Only the one who receives that name will know what it is. There are two promises in this scripture. First, hidden manna, this idea of spiritual nourishment in the new age, that God is sustainer, that God is provider, just as he was in the desert with the Israelites. He will be there for us. He promises to sustain and to provide. That second one, and the one that I, I think is just beautiful, is this idea of the white stone. Contextually, white stones were used a lot. There were four primary uses uh, in this time. One was an admission to a messianic banquet. Oftentimes they were used to vote for acquittal by a jury. They were a symbol for victory by an athlete. Or they were used to show freedom for a slave. Now think about all four of those and try to translate those into our understanding of what Jesus does for us on the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Those beautiful metaphors for what the white stone given to us by Jesus really means. Now, again, we don't really know what happens after death for sure. I think we have hope. I think we can trust in what the scripture says, but none of us have been there. But here's what I do know is that something does change. Something happens. And that when we die, we will experience the fullness 
of God. And that this white stone signifies the new characteristics of our relationship to Jesus and the new name of our true identity as full heirs, a name which we will only know. The importance of names begins in Genesis with Adam and the animals. It moves through the characters in Ruth, ends in Revelation with this idea of the white stone. And throughout the biblical narratives, as we've shown, names are connected to identity and to value. The same is true for us. We carry the name of Jesus. Our identity is connected to the living God of the universe. God sees us not for what we do or who we were, but as his children, sons and daughters of God, heirs to the fullness of him. This is not only our reality, but our hope. For in the name of Jesus, the name which we now wear, the name which we carry, we find our true identity. Let's pray.